Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine, and we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. Today is the second part of the conversation I had with Reverend Dr. Helen Painter about her most recent book, Blessed Are the Peacemakers. Dr. Painter is a professor in biblical studies and is the director of the Center for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. Last week, we talked about the need to read the text greedily, to push beyond the surface reading of the text that can lead to a really thin theology that is not always so helpful. We concluded last week talking about the need to read the law, not only as, do I have to do this or not, but to reflect on what kind of people are being shaped by the law. And we talked about learning to make the distinction between what the narrator is saying and what the characters are saying. But this week, well, now we need to address the texts that make it sound like God is saying something violent. Then what? And this is the thorniest issue. And, uh, you know, different people take different perspectives on this. I did a kind of touring lecture a few years ago, touching on one little element of that question. And it, really interestingly, the conversations I had afterwards fell into two broad categories, actually. I suppose there was a middle one as well. But w- there was one group of people who would come up to me and say, I don't know why you need to talk about this because God said it. And so it's fine. Hmm. And I would say to them, okay, that's, I'm really pleased that you don't have a problem with this. I'm not here to put a stumbling block in anybody's way. If you don't have an issue with this, then be blessed. Right. I'm you know, not going and... to create one for you. Exactly. I'm not, wasn't, was never quite sure why they'd come along, but anyway. <laughs> and then there was another group of people who would come and say to me, they'd start the same way. They'd say, I don't know why you're bothering to talk about this. We just cut those portions out of scripture. And to them, I would say, well, if you can do that, okay, be blessed, go in peace. But I can't do that because I have to take the whole scripture seriously because that's what I believe the text, that's what I believe the scripture is. I believe it's as a whole, it is God's word. And so actually there was an interesting little group in the middle who would come up to me and say, am I allowed to say that I find this really uncomfortable? Am I allowed to ask these questions? I said, oh, yes, yes, we're allowed to wrestle with God. And so, sorry, that's a long preamble to saying that I don't know. <laughs> I have to take it seriously. I I can't just dismiss it. I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to say God didn't say it. There's a very big popular book out at the moment saying that basically that God has allowed himself to be misrepresented in scripture and that as part of his kind of own humble way of interacting with humans. I can't follow that line. I find that theologically and actually logically very difficult to, to follow. There are things we can say about the content of that speech. So the language that is often translated as totally destroy or totally annihilate, it doesn't actually mean that. It means it's got a a more subtle meaning. I can't say people didn't get killed, but it's not about completely destroying things and people. So there's good work to be done around the content of what's going on, around noticing the diversity. So the book of Joshua is a book in dialogue with itself. 
you've got kind of you've got one voice saying we took it all we killed everyone we completely took the land there was not a stone left unturned in the land as it were and you've got this other voice right alongside it going and there were survivors and that bit didn't get conquered and those people came back again and and so we need to notice scripture's own dialogue dare we say discomfort one of the things i've been quite interested in is the conquest of canaan how it is told elsewhere in scripture beyond the book of joshua and um when it's told in psalms when it's retold i think we also looked i think it's kind of prefigured in the story of jacob so there's a number of places where we see that story and every time we see it it is told in much more moderate mm-hmm. ways and and i'm interested in that and i wonder if there's a if we get a sense of of discomfort but ultimately I'm not bottomed this out to my own satisfaction, and I suspect I never will until I see face to face. Maybe I'll just want to. <laughs> until you get those final questions answered from the source. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes back to your expressed desire to help people read narrative well, because even when I do map marking exercises with my students and put Joshua and Judges right next to each other, Joshua, I'm like, I mean, we have two great battles and the whole land is conquered, you know, and in the very first chapter of Judges, it's, but actually none of these areas were conquered. And so even just trying to ask the question, even you were talking about Judges 19, reading that in the context of the entire book of Judges, like what is this author or this editor doing because the storyline starts in chapter one, mm-hmm. even though it's chapter 19 that bothers us so much. Yes. So absolutely. I, yeah, wholeheartedly am with you in that trying to get people to look at entire books, entire themes. And that again, just reading it instinctually the very first time is not always helpful. Yeah. yeah. Especially because I think some people would be surprised to know that. Even in the Israelite law code, there are strict rules of conduct, even for something like when you go to war, which is a violent thing. And yet there's a code of conduct that seems to pull back on the violence in the human heart. Is there a little bit of that? Can we talk about some of the unique ways in which this Israelite law code kind of puts guardrails on the violence, even during a time of violence? Yes, thank you. So there's been some helpful work done, particularly by, so I'm really, this is very much other people's work that I'm kind of representing here. So there's a really helpful book called Bloody Brutal Barbaric by William Webb and Gordon Oster. And they look at this in some detail and they compare other ancient Near Eastern Mm. cultures, what we know about them from inscriptions and from laws that we can find and and from friezes and artwork and so on, what we learn from them about their conduct of war with what we see in the law of the Old Testament. And there are some striking differences. I mean, there are some similarities for sure, but there are some striking differences. So the Assyrians, probably the cruelest of the, the great empires, you know, in, in London, in the British Museum, there's a great freeze of the siege of Achish, I think it is. And uh, there you can see people being skinned alive and war captives being taken away, children among them. And they used terror as a weapon of war. It wasn't just something they did. It was something that they did intentionally to terrorise and put fear into those they were seeking to conquer. They also, and I say they, this is beyond the Assyrians as well, there was a quite a strong ecological aspect to yes. warfare. 
to do with salting fields and burning fruit trees and just making a land uninhabitable. Now, such things are forbidden in the law. So uh, an example being that ecological one. In Deuteronomy 20, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, if you're going to cut down trees for a siege machine, you can only cut down non-fruit trees. You're not at war with the olive trees and the fruit trees. You just leave them alone. And and this kind of idea of putting guardrails around is quite striking. I suppose another one is sexual violence in war, which seems pretty clear that that was standard in the ancient Near East. And we have to work hard to just make sure we don't misunderstand this. So in Judges 5, we have Deborah's song, Deborah being an Israelite. Mm. She's singing about, well, she's singing about the victory. And this chap called Sisera has been killed. And she's imagining Sisera's mother waiting for him to come home. And Sisera is not an Israelite. She's imagining his mother waiting for him to come home. And she's speculating about what the mother is saying. And the mother is saying, oh, he's raping women. That's why he's late coming home. So what we're not seeing here is an endorsement of war rape. We're seeing an expectation that this is how they will treat us. This is how those other nations behave, is that they will routinely rape female captives of war. Now, we do not see that in Scripture, and we don't see permission given to that at all. We do see, and we need to be really honest about this, and it's one of my other core convictions, actually, as we were talking about the Centre for the Sober Bible and Violence earlier, one of my core convictions is that we must be honest about the things that we that we can't explain or the things that are uncomfortable and we mustn't try and smooth them away. So there is an uncomfortable instruction in, I think it's Deuteronomy. So yes, Deuteronomy 21. And this is about a female war captive who a soldier has kind of taken a fancy to. And we need to notice what is and isn't permitted. Now, I am not comfortable with this. I would not want to see this happen in our world. And what is permitted is that he's allowed to take her home with him And he gives her a month to grieve for her family. And at the end of the month, she shaves her head and pairs her nails and gets a new set of clothes. And then she becomes his wife. And she has had no say in that. And we need to name that. Okay, so I'm not wanting to say that this is an ethical model that we should, going back to our conversation earlier, that we should extract from its context and imagine that this is giving us a way of conducting war today. Mm -hmm. But in comparison to what it would have been in the other nations. It is a substantial move in the right direction. So she's not raped on the battlefield. She's taken home. She is given a month, which I understand is regarded as quite a long period of mourning for the day. She's allowed to grieve. She's allowed to go through the grieving process. And it's thought that the kind of shaving of the head and the paring of the nails is probably part of the grieving process rather than a kind of act of humiliating her. And then you are not allowed to, sorry, you, you being the male, the husband, she's not allowed to be sold on. If he changes his mind and she ends up being a bad cook or something, he's not allowed to sell her on. If he decides he doesn't remain married to her, he has to let her go free. And it says, you must not sell her or treat her as a slave because you have dishonoured her. And so uncomfortable as this text is, it is still in its time quite surprising. And quite remarkable because it does honour that woman to an extent and give her dignity to an extent within the parameter of forced marriage of of, of a female war captive. Mm. And it curbs the warrior adrenaline, right? It's that kind of 
masculine adrenaline to just take and dominate. And rape has been a way through all the way to modern day time where it's been used as a tool also for terror. But that example in Deuteronomy really strikes me too in exactly the way that you said, I hate that it's there and I don't like it. Like even though it's the nicer version, I still don't like it. Yeah. But I do appreciate what it's doing on the warrior Maybe not the woman, but the warrior. Like, yes, yes. On that way. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament also has a lot to say about internal violence among the Israelites themselves, not just when they go to war. The prophets have very strong words for kings who are actually setting up unjust systems that are destroying the poor. There is a recognition of the systematic violence that, well, it may not be wielded through a sword, but it is wielded through taxes and consumption habits and also sexual violence and even violence related to what do you do if one of your family members has been killed. I wanted to talk to Dr. Painter about the internal systems for the Israelites and maybe what the vision of peace is that God says, this is the kingdom I want you to exemplify. What does that look like? I'm going to come back to the law again for a minute because I think one of the ways that we need to understand the law is that it is seeking to, in a society, as every society that utterly lacks shalom or very largely lacks shalom, shalom being this wonderful holistic peace, in a society where people are not innately leaning in that direction, the law provides a semblance of shalom. It provides an enforced shalom. So that, you know, the provision for the poor, the Jubilee, of course, the extraordinary resetting, the ju- we need to notice when we look at the Jubilee command that it is, it is in on the 50th year. So you've had seven cycles of seven. And so it is the first year of the new cycle. And uh, that sevenness of it should always make us think back to creation. And so the Jubilee provides this great reset in our society, in my society, and I think probably in in yours too. We have very little that prevents the rich from getting richer and richer and richer indefinitely and the poor from getting poorer and poorer indefinitely. And the gap gets wider. If Jubilee is observed as it is instructed to be observed, then that doesn't happen because every 50 years there's a reset. And that means that the poor are redeemed. I might talk about what that looks like in a minute. But it also means the rich are redeemed. It means the rich are saved from the temptations of wealth because the scripture is pretty clear that excessive wealth is problematic and Jubilee saves the rich from that. But I suppose, let me talk about those slavery laws, which are called slavery laws, but they're not really. So in a society of peasant farmers, which is basically what most people were, you're probably a subsistence farmer, which means that you, you know, you eat one year what you harvested last year and there's not much left over. And so you get a couple of bad crops and you might be in trouble. And, and the first thing you'll do is you'll, you know, sell your, your portable wealth, as it were. But ultimately, you may need to sell your land. Now, there's a problem with that because this is your family's land mm-hmm. and you've got a duty with your family's land. We see this in the, in the Naboth story, Ahab and Naboth. And Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I should sell you the inheritance of my fathers. I've got responsibility to my ancestors and the responsibility to my children. I'm just the tenant here. But it may be that you do actually need to sell it because you're going to die otherwise of hunger. So you sell it to your neighbor and you might have a kinsman redeemer who'll buy it back for you if you're fortunate. But if you don't, the Jubilee you get it back. 
and Leviticus says this, you're really just selling that in many harvests. How many years of the Jubilee? Oh, 27, 27 harvests I'm selling you. And then I get it back. And so my family doesn't become impoverished. It doesn't become, it's, it's, it's land tenure doesn't get smaller and smaller and smaller. But let's say that's not enough. And I've had that money and still my family are starving. So what do I do now? Well, now I sell my labor. Now I go to my rich neighbor and I say, can I become your bonded servant? And hopefully the rich neighbor will say yes. And then I and my family will, will become part of that man's household. And I will work for sure. I'll work for him um, and I won't get paid for it, I think. But we will be provided for. And we're going to be looked after until the Jubilee when I'll be able to go back to my land and uh, in freedom again. So it's not slavery. It's social security. It's a provision for the poor. And, yeah, we need to learn to notice the beauty of some of these laws. We can learn a thing or two from them, I think. Do you remember the Jubilee 2000 movement? It called for the cancellation of debt in the majority world by the year of 2000. It was based on these laws in Leviticus that are meant to provide for those in need without crippling them for multiple generations after. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about Dr. Painter's discussion of violence is that she also creates space, not just for the laws that are curbing human appetite, but also for the voices in the biblical text of those who are the recipients of violence. So I ask her how those kinds of texts help us understand this biblical theology of violence. Most of the extant literature from other countries in the time, what we hear is we hear the voices of kings. We hear people bigging up their military victories and so on. The Hebrew Bible is, I think, unique, as far as I can tell, in its self-criticism which is quite extraordinary, the voices of the prophets, for example, but also in the voices it gives to the little people. Mm. So sometimes that's about telling stories. In my work on Judges 19, back to that text again for a moment, in my work there, I say that although she doesn't speak in the narrative, that actually she is a powerful character, she speaks powerfully within the wider story. And I actually call her the final judge of the book of Judges. Uh, because of the way that she kind of exposes the iniquity of, of the people. So there's that sort of ways in which little people's stories are told and heard. There's also the voice that's given to those in Lamentations, in the Psalms, in the Prophets, the attention that is given, the grief and lament, which is given articulation, the rage, which is given articulation. The imprecation, my friend Trevor Lawrence has written the most extraordinary book called Cursing with God, looking at the value of the imprecatory psalms, the, the psalms that call down curses on the enemy, and how we need to not be embarrassed about using those in our churches, mm -hmm. because they are actually, they are a way of praying. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying something negative as well as something positive. And yeah, when we pray those psalms, we want to depersonalize them, I think, because, because the New Testament teaches us that our enemies are not flesh and blood. And our enemies are the forces and the powers that range against God and his people. And the last enemy is death. And so with that sort of depersonalization of, you know, enemies as war and sexual violence and famine and cancer and dementia and road traffic accidents and all of those natural and unnatural hideousnesses. I'm very happy to pray, Lord, 
break the teeth of my enemies, Lord, you know, bring them down to the ground. Because I'm really praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm praying, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. So, yeah, there's so much we can say about giving expression to these voices of protest, of rage, of grief, of lament, discovering that God is a God who weeps. Something that I learned as a mother when my children were tiny, taking them for their vaccinations and knowing that this pain wasn't going to last and it was actually for their good and knowing all of those things. But I still broke my little, my heart to see their little arms getting <laughs> a needle stuck in them. And I, I suddenly learned something about God there because I thought God does see the bigger picture and understands when things are sometimes for our good that we don't want. And and yet surely he, he can't be a less tender father than I am a mother, you know. Surely he grieves. And, and we see that in scripture. We see God, not just Jesus in the New Testament, but we see God mourning in the Old Testament and grieving. It really struck me when you said your kingdom come, your will be done, being positive and negative. And that in our church is almost always a positive thing. I mean, we read this within the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 5, and we do want the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome. But I think what you're touching on is when we pray for that kingdom to come, that's asking for the day of the Lord to show up. If his kingdom is going to come, it will bring into judgment the kingdoms we have currently set up. And that is striking me as very profound in a way that every Sunday when we say that prayer together, I don't think of it in that terms. I preached a sermon once, which got a bit of backlash, I can tell you. I preached a sermon once uh, basically called God is not on your side. And I was preaching from, um, <laughs> from an I early can party. I can foresee the kind of emails you got. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I was preaching from the early part of Joshua, where Joshua meets the man with the oh, yes. sword. Yes. He doesn't know that that man is an angel. If he'd known it was an angel, he wouldn't have said what he said. He'd said he'd high-fived him and said, Great, you've come to support us. Because up to that point in the story, Joshua has had no cause to doubt that God is absolutely 100% on his side. But he doesn't know it's an angel. And so he asks a question, friend or foe, and the answer is stunning. And I think should shape the way we read the rest of the book. And the answer is neither. I'm not on anybody's side. And I think we misquote sometimes, and this is what I also said in the sermon, we misquote Romans 8, if God is on our side, who can be against us? Imagining that that's a sort of Joshua moment of saying, whatever battle I choose to fight, God's on my side. And it doesn't work like that. And Roman, God, Paul's talking about in the court of heaven. If I have an advocate in the court of heaven, then there is no accuser who can prevail. But he's not saying if I pick a fight with my enemy or if I launch a war or if I... Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just so, well, I, I think, your I think train of was thought. Made. It was so good. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't stop talking. <laughs> well, we just need to stop assuming that God is on our side. And, and there's so much, I don't know, this is, comes back again to the weaponization of scripture and, and the kind of presumption. And it comes into some of the race stuff. It comes into oh, political stuff and a whole load of things. Um there's an arrogance sometimes. There's a, oh, it just makes me, I don't know, somewhere between weeping and raging. As we move towards the New Testament, um, and especially when it is surrounding questions about violence, people will often turn to Jesus saying, you know, if someone hits, you know, strikes you, turn the other cheek, this kind of love your enemy. And, and yet, where do those 
teachings, those actions fit with the idea of your kingdom come, which is a calling out for justice and righteousness. So what is it that the New Testament is doing? Is it really all that different than the Old Testament? How is it moving the story along? Yes, it's there's always this tension between continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there is so much that is continuous. And so the patterns that we've learned to identify in the Old Testament, patterns of humans pulling the whole roof down on our heads, you know, embracing chaos, decreating the world, and then God patiently, lovingly recreating it. And we see that cycle a number of times in the Old Testament. And there it is at the cross and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so many of these other deep stories that the cycles that go around and we see them come to fruition in the New Testament. So in many ways, the New Testament is not, should not be a great surprise to somebody who who knows the Old Testament. But of course, in many ways, it is a great surprise because because things are reimagined in physical categories. One of the key things to notice is that things that are physical categories in the Old Testament are, I don't want to say spiritualized in the new. I think it's more concrete than that. They're realized in eschatological ways in the new, but they don't look the same. So the, the category of land, the category of temple, the category of king, the category of Israel, they don't look the same in the New Testament. And so we see judgment in the Old Testament. We see you know, the day of the Lord, you mentioned that earlier, the day of the Lord, uh, that the prophets see it ahead. And what do they mean by that? They often don't quite know what they mean by it, but it's that decisive moment when God will mm-hmm. act in history. And some of those days of the Lord have happened for us, and some of them haven't yet. And I think one of the key things is that we we are enabled to turn the other cheek. We can live in this peaceable way, at least in theory, because there is a coming day of the Lord, because there is a coming judgment. I have a bee in my bonnet about us being so apologetic about judgment and we don't want to preach it. We don't want to talk about it. And and I'm not proposing a, a return to the sort of preaching that, you know, hellfire and brimstone and, and scaring people into the kingdom of God. But I do think that we need to recover judgment as good news because it means that there will be an end to the great injustices of this world and, and all the evil. And I say bring it on and I pray for it almost daily, I think. And yes, like you were saying earlier, I need to be aware that judgment cuts in every direction. But as Paul says, you know, thanks be to God for the Saviour who will enable us to stand in the judgment. That's Revelation. So Jesus, the New Testament invites us to reshape our categories, to understand the enemy differently, to understand that our participation in the spiritual warfare, which is in continuity with the Old Testament, looks different. It's not physical anymore. It's not the New Testament does not give us permission to go to war, quite the opposite. I'm not, there's a more complex question around warfare, but in terms of what is kind of clearly prescribed, our enemies are not flesh and blood and we don't wage war with weapons. And so those instructions to turn the other cheek, to forgive, to pray for our persecutors, they are possible because of the cross and because of final judgment. Yeah. I think. It strikes me Because at the beginning of our talk, you were talking about talking to Ukrainian theologians and people saying, oh, just forgive them. (laughs) And and now we're ending our talk with, because of the cross, we can forgive, but maybe there's also space for the imprecatory Psalms in between. I think so. I think so. I'd be really curious to know how you spend so much time thinking about violence and still having hope for the world and for the church. It's not always easy, actually, but it's something that I 
I've, I have hope because I all my hope is upon the promises of God and the new heavens and the new earth, which are the sure and certain hope that we are given. And so, you know, ultimately, that's what gives me hope. It's something that I'm really meditating on this year, actually. Maybe I can mention this if I may. I've got a YouTube series. I'm releasing one little video a week and it's called Why Hope? Because I think there's a lot of people right now feeling that question. And so I'm trying to, again, not, you know, pulling out little proof texts and saying, here's a little verse to make you feel good, but actually looking at some of the deep reasons in scripture, why we can mm. hope. So if anyone is interested in that, it's on the YouTube channel of the Center for the Study of Bible and Violence. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for your really challenging and hard work. I appreciate it. Thank you for championing people reading the Bible well. I feel like we are of kindred souls in that way. And thank you for all you're doing in that regards. And thank you for being on the podcast. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. In this episode, Dr. Painter has mentioned several books along with the YouTube channel, and I will put links to all of those in the episode notes, along with other ways to explore more of her work and the work of the Center for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. Thank you for being here today. I'm so glad we get to hang out together around the podcast table. And we get to do this only because there are generous people who are part of my team on Patreon. People like David and Michelle Kaufman, Robert Lundberg, they financially contribute to this project to make sure we get to hear from a wide variety of scholars. If you would like to join in, you will find a link to my Patreon page in the episode notes. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is really good to be with you. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you. 